0: Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them uh, in the Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah. And chapter number 29 in the book of Jeremiah, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn in it to page 559, and you would be at Jeremiah 29. Now, over the years here at Wildwood, I have discussed future prophetic events from the Bible numerous times, but there was a recent event that many in the eyes of our culture thought put a black mark on the Bible. It gave biblical truth a black eye. In fact, a recent event uh, fostered a lot of response, um, which was made up of a lot of ridicule towards Scripture. There was razzing and scoffing and smirking and snickering when it came to the Bible and God's prophetic proclamations of the future. And, I, and I, you need to know that when something like that happens, it ruffles my feathers. It provokes me. Whenever the Word of God is dishonored, whenever God's proclamations related to the future are discredited or maligned, it upsets me. Now, the individual who is behind this event is a gentleman by the name of Harold Camping. Harold Camping is 89 years old. He is a California radio evangelist and has this ministry called Family Radio. And here's what Harold Camping was saying. He was saying that the rapture, which is the evacuation of believers from this world, was going to occur on May 21, 2011. It's last May 21. It would be followed by a worldwide earthquake. There would be five months of mayhem and destruction. And then on October 21, 2011, the world would end. Now, this is the second time that Harold Camping has talked about the end of the world. In 1992, he predicted that the world would end in September of ninety four. Somehow, in his calculations, he was figuring out 7,000 years from the day that Noah shut the door of the ark, and thus he came up with these dates. It seems a little dubious to me for anyone to be able to feel like they can calculate the very day that Noah shut the door on the ark. But he was coming up with precise dates, and the Lord Jesus himself addressed that issue regarding his second coming in the end of the age, when in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said this, Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, Harold Camping has this website that he put up called WeCanKnow.com. And one of the things they did is they spent millions of dollars putting up 500 billboards across the country. And then not only that, they had 20 recreational vehicles that had plastered on the side of them messages about the end. One of them said this, have you heard the good news? The end of the world is almost here. It begins May 21. The Bible guarantees it. In fact, Harold Camping made this statement about that date. He said, we do not have a plan B. There is no possibility that it will not happen because all our information comes from the Bible. And of course, we know that it it didn't happen. And and I, I want to just say that I have very little empathy for Mr. Camping, While he is a a nice guy who is soft-spoken, he is a very deeply stubborn person. And he even admitted publicly before May 21 came that all the prophecy experts disagreed with him about the May 21 date. But I also want you to know that my heart really goes out to the hundreds of people who were misled by Mr. Camping. Many of them quit their jobs well ahead of May 21. Many of them gave away all of their belongings. Uh, Many of them spent all of their savings or a large portion of their retirement. One individual just before May 21 took his family from Maryland and put them in the vehicle and drove them all the way to California, to Oakland, so that they could be there at the headquarters of Family Radio when everything began on May 21. Another guy, Jeff Hopkins, who's 52 years old, a television producer in New York, he spent all of his savings on putting a lighted sign on top of a car, and he would drive that around New York. And this is what he said. He said, I've been mocked and scoffed and cursed at. I've been through a lot with this lighted sign on top of my car. I was doing what I thought I'd been instructed to do through the Bible but now I've been stymied. This is after May 21. It's like getting slapped in the face. Part of what happened in our culture after May 21 was an avalanche of ridicule that came. In fact, it even started before May 21. On May 16, on the TV program The View, it was opened with Whoopi Goldberg saying regarding the May 21 date, she said, this is what Christian groups, plural, are teaching. And it is utterly ridiculous. And then on that program, Joy Behar, who is a little marriage phobic, even though she's living with her boyfriend, she mocked this. She said, I guess I could get married to him on Friday before May 21st. Then Our vow of till death do us part would only be a commitment for one day. Ha, 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 ha. The whole incident has led tens of thousands of people to dismiss the Bible as something that is irrelevant, to laugh at the Bible's prophetic predictions. And that, men and women, raises my hackles. It just does. By the way, some of you may be thinking, well, what happened after May 21 when Nothing occurred. Well, here's what Camping has gone on to say. He says that May 21 was a spiritual judgment day. He says all salvation issues for everybody on the planet were completed that day. You were either in the kingdom of God by May 21 or you were out of the kingdom of God by May 21. He said now all we're doing is waiting for the world to end on October 21st. He said, there's really no need to warn anybody, no need for more billboards or RVs running around because everyone's destiny has already been decided on May 21. So he said, what we're going to do on the radio is we're just going to play Christian music and some Christian programming until October 21st when everything ends. Now, I want you to know that my desire is to really support what Scripture says. I want to reinforce... Bible predictions. You know, Jesus is going to return to this world. There are a number of signs that point to the nearness of Jesus' return. So therefore, we are going to launch into a series of messages I have entitled, Signs of the End Times. And we're going to spend three weeks looking at this. But what we're going to do today is give us a basic orientation to the concept of prophecy in the Bible. Because I think we need to get our biblical bearings a little bit. And I want to reinforce the truth that the Bible is accurate in what it clearly teaches. Now, it has been estimated that when this book was written, one quarter of it was prophetic. In other words, one quarter of it was giving predictions about future events. Someone has calculated that there are a thousand prophecies in the Bible, 500 of which have already been fulfilled. And in essence, when you have a prophecy from God in the Scriptures, it is nothing more than God stating history in advance. Now, we could examine and review all 500 of the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. That would take us quite a while. We could look at things like, for example, the prophecy 700 years before it happened about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. We could look at the prophecy some seven centuries before that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. We could look at the prophecy... Again, some 700 years before the fact that Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb, we could look at all of those. All of those prophecies fulfilled with precise, stunning accuracy. But what I would like to do, just to give us some orientation to Bible prophecy, is highlight three prophecies just to give us a sense of how clear and how accurate God's predictions are. So the very first one that I want to look at this morning is the prophecy delineating a Medo-Persian king's name and actions before his birth. In other words, it was a prophecy that God gave before this particular king was ever born that not only gave his name but gave the actions that he would um, do in his life. Now, if you look at Jeremiah 29 verse 10, this simply sets up the historical background for the prophecy we're going to look at. It says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, speaking to Israel, and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Now, here's what what happens. The Babylonians come... And they take the southern kingdom of Judah away. And then the question is, is there a future for Israel? And what God really says to them, after 70 years of captivity, I will let you begin to return to the land of Israel. That is the prediction that we see in Jeremiah 29.10. Now, to get to more of this particular prophecy, turn one book to the left, to the book of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 44. So what we're saying is that Israel had been taken away into captivity by Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, God says, after 70 years, I'm bringing you back. I'm letting you start to go back to the land. But what I really want you to notice, Isaiah forty-four twenty-eight 28, and then 45, 1, they're just back-to-back verses. Now, what we're going to read here occurred about 700 B.C., Was recorded in 700 BC. It is I who says of Cyrus, this is this future king of Medo Persia, this is God speaking, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. And he, this Cyrus, will declare of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Verse 1 of chapter 45, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Now here's what you need to understand. This was 100 years before Cyrus was even born. It was 150 years before the event that these verses are describing. And In fact, in chapter 45, verses 2 to 6, basically what God is saying, I'm going to raise this guy up. I'm naming his name right now. And I have a plan to use him. And in particular, notice what he says in in verse 4. He says, I'm doing this for the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. And and he says now of Cyrus, I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. I'm basically making you king, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. There is no other, verse 5. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me. 150 years before this event happens, 100 years before he's even born, God says this about Cyrus. Now, I want you to turn with me about halfway back towards the front of your Old Testament to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's the 14th book of the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles... 36. And we're going to see the actual event now occurring. The last two verses of 2 Chronicles. So this is 150 years later. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Medo-Persia was the kingdom In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, what had Jeremiah said? He said, after 70 years of captivity by the Babylonians, I'm going to let you start to come back to the land. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout the Medo-Persian kingdom, and he also put it in writing. And he says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among all of you his people, the people of Israel in the Medo-Persian kingdom, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. If you want to go back to Judah, you can do it. I think of the words that are, Back in the book of Isaiah, we didn't get to them, but they're in chapter 46. This is what really God has to say in chapter 46, verses 9 to 11. He says, remember the the former things long past, for I am God. He says, there is no other. I am God. There's no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done... And then he goes on to say, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. You see, what God declares in his prophetic predictions are nothing more than history in advance. What he clearly says will happen will happen. He will make it so. And so thus we see this prophecy was fulfilled with precise, stunning accuracy. Now, there's a second prophecy I want to look at as we just orient ourselves to this idea of Bible prophecy, and that is this, the prophecy chronicling the ultimate destruction of one of the world's most prominent cities. And we see that in the book of Ezekiel, and chapter number 26, Ezekiel, So it's to the right in your Bible from Isaiah, Ezekiel 26. There was a movie that came out in 1996. It was a movie starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. It's a movie entitled The Rock. And uh, it's a movie about a renegade group who takes a group of hostages to Alcatraz Island, you know, the rock was its nickname. And uh, the government's trying to figure out in this movie how to free the hostages. And so, as the story of the movie goes, they go to the only man who's ever escaped Alcatraz, which was Sean Connery. And I think now he was somehow able to sneak off the island. We could use him to allow us to sneak on the island, and then we can rescue these hostages. By the way, this movie was on uh, yesterday, and I was watching part of it again. Now, part of the reason why I, I, I like the movie is I enjoy, I enjoy the storyline and some of what's going on in the characters. But another reason why I, I enjoy the movie is that Janet and I had the opportunity to actually go to Alcatraz and go on the recorded, where you wear the little headset, uh, tour of the whole place. And So the movie intrigues me because I've been to The Rock and I've walked all around the rock, and so as I'm watching the movie, it's interesting to see how they utilize that place. Well, this prophecy we're looking at about the destruction of one of the world's most prominent cities is a story about the original rock. It's a story about a, a city by the name of Tyre, and its name means the rock. And Tyre was an international seaport and trade center, part of the Phoenician Empire. And Tyre was an incredibly wealthy city. In fact, it was called the Prince of Commerce. And in an interesting way, in previous decades, Jerusalem and Tyre had been a little bit of competitors. You see, because Tyre had the corner of the market. Of all of the sea trade that would go on. And Jerusalem, in some ways, in that region of the world, had a corner of the market on the land trade that would go on. The land caravan routes would go through Jerusalem. So in some ways, they were a little bit of competitor cities. But Tyre was a city that actually had two parts to it. One of the parts was Along the shore of the mainland there were coastal settlements settlements of Tyre. That was part of the city of Tyre. But the most powerful part of the city of Tyre was this rock island that was out there, one-half mile away from the coastal settlements. And they believed that the rock island part of Tyre was impregnable. Nobody could take the island. Part of the reason why was they had a great navy, and they could protect that island. And what they would do in those days, by the way, if you wanted to take a city, is you would tend to surround it, cut off all their supply lines. They couldn't get food and water in, and then they were doomed. Well, they had this great navy, and they could resupply themselves on the island with their ships. Not only that, but out there on the rock, they had a double wall around that part of the island. It was 150 feet tall, double wall between the two walls, 25 feet of earth packed between the walls. They did that to make the walls hard to to knock down, hard to be able to ram, very difficult. Of course, it was very, very difficult to get a battering ram out a half of a mile. How are you going to do that? So they thought they were impregnable. Again, they had this army. If anyone ever came and tried to attack them on the island, they had this huge wall, 25 feet of earth there, double wall, 150 feet high. They could get supplied all that they needed to get supplied. And by the way, when you had a wall like that, it was very hard to ram, very difficult, but it would be nearly impossible if you can't get a battering ram out there Now, as Ezekiel writes what he's writing in Ezekiel 26, just prior to this, the Babylonians had taken Judah and Jerusalem into captivity. And I want you to notice what happens in verse 2 of chapter 26. God says, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem. They got real happy over what happened to Jerusalem. Aha! The gateway of the peoples is broken. It is open to me, the city of Tyre. I shall now be filled now that she, Jerusalem, is laid waste. In other words, they're basically mocking the fact that Jerusalem got judged. They said, now we're going to do double well because their little place, which was a key trade crossroads, is shut down. Now as the sea crossroads, we're going to do even better. This is going to be great. Well, because that was your attitude, verse 3, therefore says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre. I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves, and they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock, and she will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become the spoil for the nations." And also, verse 6, her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. So he gives the reason for doing this in verse 2. You want to mock the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, we're going to come after you. And he says there in verse 3 that I'm going to bring up many nations against you, Tyre. In other words, he's saying there's going to be waves of aggressors that are going to come at you. And ultimately, we're going to make you a bare rock in verse 4. And you're going to become, as it says in verse 5, a place for the spreading of nets. You know, those fishermen in those days had to have a flat, pretty broad place to lay out their nets to dry and to be repaired. The first wave comes against Tyre, beginning with verse 7, where Nebuchadnezzar, who was the same one who had taken Jerusalem, now comes after Tyre. And he had a 13 year siege against Tyre. And during that time, he crushed their coastal settlements. The trouble was that Nebuchadnezzar did not have a navy. And so while he tried to get after the rock out there, he really couldn't do it. Now the second major wave that came at Tyre, which was bigger actually than Nebuchadnezzar's, was Alexander the Great, who almost 200 years came after them in 332 B.C. And what had happened is when Nebuchadnezzar had taken the coastal settlement there, the mainland portion, He had basically left that in a ruin. But he couldn't take the island fortress. Well, guess what? Alexander did. And Alexander came there, and and he looked at this situation, and he said, you know what? It's a half mile out there, but I bet I could build a bridge out there. Interestingly enough... Um, he had a navy, he assembled a navy that was able to surround the rock island. They couldn't get supplies in. And then what he decided to do is all of this debris that had been left over from Nebuchadnezzar's attack on the coastal portions, he said, I'm going to use that. And that's exactly what he did. Notice in verse 12, it says, he it says... Uh, They will throw your stones, the last part of verse 12, and your timbers and your debris into the water. That's exactly what Alexander did. He took all the debris and began to build a bridge, a causeway out to the island, 200 feet wide for half of a mile. It's interesting. Historians tell us that when he started to do that, the people of Tyre out on the island just mocked him What a stupid thing that is! They were incredibly cocky, but guess what happened over time? They built closer, 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 closer. Eventually, they completed the causeway. Alexander the Great was able to use that to bring catapults out to the island to batter the walls, and then he brought out battering rams. And eventually, the island fell. And there were further assaults that came on Tyre over the following years. But I want you to notice particularly verse 14. He says, I will make you a bare rock or you will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more for I the Lord have spoken. Now what is interesting is that even in Jesus' day there was a, a town called Tyre. Even today there is a town called Tyre. But it's not the same Tyre that used to exist there before. It's near it, but it's not on the ancient site. In fact, for centuries, fishermen spread their nets where Tyre used to be. And I haven't actually had the privilege yet of visiting Tyre. I would really like to go there. But I understand that today, part of the rock island is submerged under the Mediterranean. And you can look And the water, and you can see the dark reefs that, that are still part of that. And that ancient site where Tyre used to stand, well, if you go there today, I understand that there's ruins there. And it's very, very barren. In fact, we have a shot here from a satellite, and it shows you the original location of Tyre, and you'll just see that there's just nothing there. It's just basically bare. And this is an amazing story because, you know, in history, in, in ancient cities, when they were torn down, especially if they had um, some advantages to the landscape and everything, they would be rebuilt right on their site. And there is a massive freshwater spring right where Tyre, ancient Tyre, used to be that could support a world-class city today. But there's nothing there. The prince of commerce is long gone And when the Bible makes a prediction, it's history in advance. And this prediction was fulfilled with precise and stunning accuracy. Now there's a third and final one I want to look at. We're just going to begin to look at it this week. A third prophecy that was made, and that is this, forecasting the exact day of Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem. And in order to get there, we need to turn one book to the right in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, forecasting the exact day of Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem. Now, some have called this the crown jewel of prophecy. Sir Isaac Newton said of this prophecy, he said, "'We could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone.'" Now, what's going on in Daniel 9 is that Daniel has been reading about the promise of restoration of Jerusalem that God made, and in response to his inquiries about this, this is what God has to say in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. I'm going to read through this, so just follow me. God says, seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city." to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. So you are to know, Daniel, and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. And then after the 62 weeks... The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end that there will be war and desolations are determined. And we'll go on and look more at verse 27 next time. But here's basically what is being communicated, and and the idea is this, there are 70 weeks in the original language, the word for weeks literally means seventy sevens. It's just the word for a unit of seven. We have a word like that in our language called a dozen. A dozen just refers to 12. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. And in the context of what's going on in Daniel, we know that's referring to years. So basically, this is what Daniel hears. He's saying, we want to be... Going and and having Israel restored and Jerusalem restored, and God says there's 490 years that have been given to your people, who who would be your people, be Daniel's people, Israel. 490 years have been given to your city, that's a reference to Jerusalem, until we bring in everlasting righteousness. In other words, that's a description of Messiah's kingdom. So you hear what Daniel's hearing here is God saying there's going to be 490 years and Messiah's kingdom will begin. Now what happens in these verses is there is a division among these 490 years. It says in verse 25, From a decree to restore Jerusalem... Until Messiah, there's going to be seven units of seven and 62 units of seven, which is 69 units of seven, if you are mathematical, which is 483 years. In other words, from a decree, until Messiah comes, it will be 483 years. Verse 26, he says, after those 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off which is a Hebrew idiom for saying the Messiah is going to die. And then secondly, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened, by the way, in 70 AD. So here's the bottom line. From the de- decree to restore Jerusalem until Messiah comes, there will be 483 years. Now, this is awesomely exciting Sir Robert Anderson first began to calculate this in 1881. He was chief of the criminal investigations unit at Scotland Yard. And he, as he tracked this back, and by the way, there were a number of decrees for people to go back to Jerusalem, he tracked it back to a decree in the reign of King Artaxerxes. And Dr. Harold Honer has incorporated some of the more recent archaeological information. And and I want you to pull out the little handout that you have, little yellow handout that was in your notes, and this gives the whole summary. Now, we're not going to look at all of this today. But remember, we did talk about a decree that Cyrus had when he says, you can start going back. Cyrus's decree had more to do with just beginning to return to the land, uh, beginning to rebuild the temple. This is talking about a decree to restore the city of Jerusalem. And we know that decree was given by Artaxerxes. It's described for us in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. You can look it up later. Remember, Nehemiah went to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Artaxerxes gives this decree on March the 5th. We can track this, 444 B.C., from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah comes, there will be 483 years. And you track that forward, and that comes out to March the 30th of 33 A.D., which is the very day of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the box, and it's in the right part of your chart, It it tells how all of this was calculated out. You know, the Jewish lunar year has 360 days to it. And we see here a bunch of descriptions of different time periods in Scripture. But if you go to the box that's immediately to the left, it shows you how this was all verified. If you take 69 times 7 times 360 days, you end up with 173,880 days. You take March the 5th, 444 B.C., and you add to it 173,880 days, and you come to March 30th, 33 A.D. Now, of course, Jesus was very aware of this prophecy, It was prophesied the very day Messiah would come. And as he gets ready to enter the city, he starts lamenting all of this. And in Luke 19, Luke chapter 19, verse 44, Jesus says this of Israel. He said, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Oh, it had been prophesied back in Daniel, but you missed it as a nation. All this tells us the Bible is accurate. What God declares will happen, will happen as he says it will happen. Remember what it said back in Isaiah. God says, truly, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. And he'll do it with precise, stunning accuracy. So what I want to do, why I've taken us all through this, is I want us to respect the words of prophecy. They are history in advance. Now, the question is, we've looked at some fulfilled prophecies. Has God left us in the dark regarding the future? And the answer to that is no. In fact, you might remember from this prophecy, we'll look at this more in the weeks ahead. There are seven more years given to Israel, seven more years until Messiah's kingdom comes. And what I believe has happened is that the prophetic clock stopped with the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. And it's going to restart in Daniel 9, verse 27. And it's going to end seven years later with the destruction of the person called the Antichrist described for us in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20. And we're going to look at some of these future indications of the second coming of Christ next week. So... Let's think of some life response that we can have with everything we've looked at today. I'm going to suggest two aspects of life response. The first thing we should do is be confident. God is large and he is in charge. He is sovereign. He has a plan. He knows exactly what he's going to do and he knows when he's going to do it. And if these prophetic proclamations out of the past have been fulfilled to the letter, we can be confident that it verifies the accuracy of the word of God. This is not something to be dismissed. It's something to be studied. And if they have been fulfilled to the letter, it verifies that what God has to say about sin is true. What he has to say about salvation through the person of Christ is true. What he has to say about eternity is true. What he has to say about heaven and hell is true. So we need to be confident in who he is and confident in the word of God. second life response, I believe, is that we should give praise to him. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, these words are written by Daniel. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. It is he who reveals the hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells in him. We need to honor and give him praise. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for all of this perspective today. We are grateful that what the Word of God clearly states will clearly be verified as fully accurate. May it give us confidence not only in the Bible, but in everything you have to say, about a Savior and a rescuer from sin and judgment, and about eternity in heaven and hell. And Father, we would pray that we would come out of our time studying all these things, giving you praise and honor. You are the one who is in charge, and we want to worship you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.